Chris Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailer Snatter, just talking to teachers. Hello and welcome to Nailer's Natter, back after a busy few weeks. We've been dealing with the small matter of research Ed Blackpool, which I'm pleased to report seemed to be a great success. So thank you once again to everybody who attended and to all the speakers who kindly gave of their time. If you weren't able to be there on the day, can I point you in the direction of Craig Barton's excellent podcast where he's interviewing our director, Simon Cox. We're talking you through all the highlights of the sessions. So check that out with the link below. So I'm going to get back into podcasting and I'm pleased to report that I've got some excellent guests skillfully networked through Research Ed Blackpool. So in the next few weeks we had tentative approval from Daniel Mers, the Deputy Director of Ofsted, who said that he would be very keen to come on the podcast. So I am going to hold him to that and that was going to come up in the next few weeks. But today I'm delighted to say that I have with me Amy Forrester. Now Amy is an English teacher she is head of year 10, she is member of Team English, and importantly for this podcast, she's interested in all things evidence-informed in education. She's a big fan of Ofsted, um, she's a Gove fan, and she's also, like me, a school governor. So I'm going to be asking her the usual set of questions regarding her favourite piece of research, but I'm also going to be asking her about um, her presentation at Research Ed Blackpool, which generated a great deal of interest before, during and after the conference. So this is a fascinating interview, and without further ado, welcome Amy. Okay, welcome Amy, welcome to the podcast. Hiya. So we're going to start with the first question, uh, listeners will be used to this, me calling it the X Factor question. So if you can just tell us a little bit about you, your journey to this point, and your current role. Um, okay, so I'm an English teacher, um, and I teach in Cumbria in a little place called Cockermouth. Um, and I've been teaching for about nine years now, um, and I'm also head of year 10 at Cockermouth School. Fantastic, so very, very busy. And I also noticed in your bio that you're also a school governor as well. I am, yes. So um, I'm a primary school governor, so a brilliant little primary school in a place called Frisington, um, and that's a really good experience as well. Definitely, and, and listeners will know that uh, you know I'm pretty new to that role, and I, similarly I've got... Uh, a role at my children's primary school as well for governor, so yeah, a very worthwhile job. Okay, as you know, the big focus of the podcast is to discuss with our listeners the one piece of research that has most influenced you. So what is that piece of research? Um, so that is um, a paper that I came across by um, Kapida et al. That is um, called Spacing Effects in Learning. Um, and it's basically a paper about the way that you kind of the, the time that needs to lapse in between learning and retrieving something in order to maintain that knowledge over um, a week, a month, six months and a year. Brilliant. I must admit, this is not one that I'm particularly familiar with, so I'm going to need a little bit more kind of detail on this. So what what prompted you to read it? When did you read it? And if you can, remember, you know, what was the context in which you looked at this? Um, so I came across it on David Didal's blog a couple of years ago now. Um, and he'd sort of done what he does really well, which is kind of distill the academic stuff and make it quite easy to understand for teachers. Um, and I, that's how I came across it. And the reason I was looking at that was because um, it was kind of the start of the new specs for English. 
um, and the English Literature GCSEs contained quite a big jump in terms of knowledge that students needed and they needed a, like a huge volume of quotations from a number of different texts. So I was looking for something that was going to help me with, right, well, how do I get my kids to know this stuff for the amount of time that they need to know it for? Um, ideally, forever, because that would be great, but, yeah. you know, how do we support them to know it in preparation for the exams? Um, and that was kind of the, the context at the time for it. Brilliant. So in terms of, obviously, you're still teaching a lot. Um, so how yeah. have you used this research in your own classroom and maybe wider across English? Um, so I started off using it just by looking at um, quotations, first of all. It was like a bit of a baby step, but it was also quite a big leap because, you know, we were, talk we were about six, nine months before the exam and it was like, well, I need, to, I need to base what I'm doing on something. You know, I can't just go off gut instinct. Um, so I used that and it, it was really effective. So the first, um, our first set through um, the exams, my group had done um, brilliantly. We were sort of out of three in a sort of middle to lower um, ability set. And so, the, you know, everything was sort of suggesting that that, that might have been um, one of the things that had helped. Um, and so from there, I took that slightly wider um, and used it to... Um, devised like a homework schedule that was purely just revision rather than um you know doing tasks or anything like that um, and the homework schedule was kind of set it all out for them over a period of months um and then from there that the department sort of picked up on that and started using some of those things um, i helped out some of the other languages um in particular some of the departments and sort of helped them with how they might apply findings from that paper to their subject um, and then I also spoke at Research Ed Oxford a couple of years ago which was an English and languages kind of special um, and sort of shared that practice there um, and I know a number of schools now also use um, the sort of the models that I was sort of giving and talking about how, how we'd applied that in context and, and from what I know that's going well in a number of other schools as well. Mm -hmm. And that kind of leads on to the next question in terms of what, what's been the impact in terms of, you know, you reading that paper, sharing it wider. It's difficult to gauge, but what do you feel has like been the wider impact, you know, raising awareness of it, that kind of thing? It is, I think the wider impact is it's sort of twofold, really. There's, there's the fact that it impacts with other teachers who realise, and I think perhaps this isn't new, but the idea that you've got to recap stuff to maintain it um, I think for a lot of my time of teach, like teaching um, people would be saying oh why can't they remember what a noun is why can't they remember what a simile is and it's like well it's because they haven't thought about it for months mm -hmm. you know you've been doing something else and so that that kind of realisation for me was really powerful um, and I know it, it's helped a number of other teachers as well um, but I also found that um, for students they felt really, really confident with it because at first they were like, oh, that's loads of work, miss. We're going to die. Um, they didn't die. You're fine. Um, but they were like, after a couple of weeks, they could see it working and they were like, oh, actually, I know loads about this. Um, and they kind of, when they were sharing that with their friends, they were like, oh, we know loads more than them. Um, and that sort of building that confidence um, was really helping with the kids, but I think it also helped in terms of their 
exam stress and confidence as well. So I think it's dead easy for kids to become overly stressed um, and stick their heads in the sand. But when they actually start to see something paying off and they're like, do you know what, I, I know this stuff now, um, that really helps them to conquer that exam anxiety that they get as well. So a number of impacts um, in different areas for me. Mm. No, it's fascinating because um, we're at the same point in terms of year 11, so we finished the curriculum by February half term and now it's all you know, looking at revision, but looking at revision in a different way to perhaps how we've done it before. So a lot of revision lessons that we traditionally did following completing the course in February was, right, let's go and reteach it all again just in a shorter yeah. period of time. And we've done a lot of stuff, obviously informed by the evidence and the research, the school stuff that we're doing around retrieval or revisiting it and, and coming over it again and we are seeing exactly what you said there that, that there's a lot more confidence they feel a lot more prepared uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to preempt what the results are going to be like but it certainly <laughs> feels like they're a lot more prepared and it's, it's thanks to things like that so it does go across curricula yeah oh absolutely um, and those sort of techniques as well and this is kind of where it's for me, I've started bringing it into my pastoral work as well. So it's it's techniques like that that I try and address through our pastoral program, either assemblies that I'm doing or resources that I'm using the year group, um, and actually showing them these techniques that are going to build that confidence. Because for me, like year ten is the year where they need to be finding out about these sorts of things so that they can grow in confidence and know how to do it, ready for year eleven, so that they are confident going into the exams. Because you know that's what we all want, isn't it? Definitely. A really interesting sort of side note, anecdote on that. Um, I was teaching Year 11 this week and we've done a lot around revision techniques and what is and what isn't successful revision. So we did a big thing, Simon Cox and I, about you know just reading through your notes, highlighting, making it look all nice isn't the best way to yeah, do things. Yeah, make it look pretty. Yeah, exactly. It isn't the best way to do things. So this week in, in a lesson, I, I pulled the highlighters out. Now, it was for a particular purpose and the absolute shock and horror on their faces was just, well, we, what, what are you using those for? We don't use highlighters anymore. You know, highlighter is not effective uh, form of revision. I was like, "Whoa, hang on! This is this is pupils quoting the research back at us, which is great." Yeah, I mean, exactly. We're, we, I mean, what more could you want? Well, exactly. We were actually using it to try and highlight areas of strength and areas that they need to look at, and then do some sort of retrieval around that. But yeah, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about it that way. So you're doing quite a lot, sort of assemblies based and, and pastorally across the year group with this kind of thing as well. Yeah. So that's what I'm. I think there's. Pastoral is a funny old beast because there's, you know, you've got your PSHE kind of well-being on all of that sort of stuff that you want to address. But for me, like the academic stuff underpins that because if they, if they're doing well in school, they're going to feel better about themselves. So one kind of strong strand of my sort of two-year program with them is all focused on the academic and it's focused on, right, well, how do we revise? How do we learn? Um, how do we build things so that they become a habit? It's that thing of like routine and excellence. It's getting them into the the mindset for year eleven of going like, do you know what? This is I know what to do now because it's habit. None of this is new information to me. And if something feels comfortable and it feels safe for them, then they're more likely to engage with it. I think definitely. Definitely. Right, great. Thank you for that. So we just move into the second half of the podcast. And, and what I'd like you to ask you about is kind of retrospective on the talk that you did at Research at Blackpool, which I know was extremely well received. And, and you're, yeah. you're much, much further down the road in terms of what you're doing with professional development and, and linking this to the research and evidence. Then we, we're making our first kind of tentative steps in that direction. So I wonder if you could just summarize, you know, 
obviously it was it was a 40 minute talk but if you could summarize <laughs> you know the key points of what you did talk about at research at blackpool yeah so we um we talked about our approach to um performance related pay which is quite different to um, a number of schools in that um, we don't use exam data targets we don't use um, enforced targets um, there's nothing to do with lesson observations there's nothing to do with book looks or book scrutinies or anything like that and um, it's purely just um, choose an area of your practice that you want to improve go off read some stuff try some stuff you know, look at the impact of whether that's actually helped in the classroom. And actually, that paper I was talking about before, um, the Capita paper, that was actually part of the first, um, my first cycle through this um, uh, policy. So it was, you know, you can see from that kind of where that's gone in terms of impact in school and impact wider. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very free um, and very kind of professionally stimulating process where, um, actually, your pay is linked to how much you're trying to improve something in the classroom. Um, and what is important about it is that it's not about whether necessarily that thing works, because as we all know, you know, some things work everywhere, some things work nowhere, something works in one room with one kid, doesn't work somewhere else. And um, we don't want staff to be put off by that and think that they have to solve, you know, all the world's ills in one academic year, because it's just not going to work like that. Um, but it's about having that confidence to say, right, well, I've read this, I've done this, I've tried this. Yes, I think it might have worked. Here's some reasons why. Or actually, no, it didn't work. Here's what I've learned and here's what I'm going to do next. Um, so it's quite quite different to some more kind of punitive um, mm. policies that exist elsewhere in schools, unfortunately. No, absolutely. So when you first outlined this to staff, what was their reaction initially? Um, well, it was it, there was a, there was kind of this like working party put together, and, and I was on that, and this was very much kind of led by um, our head Rob Petrie, who um, felt that this was something that our school desperately needed to change. Um, and at first, the reaction was very positive because you know we're getting rid of really onerous. Um, pay applications, box ticking, stuff that doesn't make an impact actually on children or learning or anything in your classroom. Um, and then I think as with any change, there's always a period of time where people are unsure. And when it's the first time through something, that level of unsurety goes up. And I think that's partly to do with um, teaching as a whole, kind of the morale issue that we've got, the way that we're treated, you know, in the press nationally, that sort of thing. People worry very much about whether they're doing enough or whether they're good enough and actually that was something we learned about um quite quickly through this was um trust is important because it is people's pay at the end of the day and so the third year through i think there was a lot of unsurety and you know rob won't mind me saying that because you know i had i had that conversation within myself a number of times during that first year but um following that um attitudes have changed and people can see now actually yeah, this is helping me improve as a teacher, which is what, you know, if we've got to do performance-related pay, let's make it about that. Um, and I think people can trust now that if they're engaging with this, then they don't need to worry about the pay progression. That's, you know, that will take care of itself. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, we've done some tentative movements in this direction, a more sort of disciplined inquiry approach to 
one section of performance related pay or appraisal anyway um but people seem to think you know some of the people who talk about it that maybe this is an easier way but actually the investment in the professional development is quite substantial and does take quite a lot of time so it's not just we do appraisal oh it's done now there's no more data target it is quite an involved process isn't it oh it is absolutely and um we I think in order to give staff the time to work on that, because, you know, we're all very busy, our workloads are challenging, um, but we do get a lot of time as up through um, school. We have sort of calendared slots, um, we have time on insert days, we have kind of optional sessions where we can go to get a bit more help with it, or we can work on our own with it. Um, we get a significant amount of time to actually sit and read around what you're doing, and actually that is... Um, that's not always easy. Battling with academic papers takes a bit of, you know, getting the old brain cells fired up if you've not done that for a while. Um, but it is, it, it, it's it's challenging, but in a very different way. But for me, we're not in control of what kids do when they walk into that exam hall. Um, and so basing pay on that, for me, is an ethical issue. Um what we are in control of is how much we try and improve our teaching in the classroom and I haven't met any teacher ever doesn't want to do that and so for me that's putting the the control um, and the effort on us in something that we can change and something that we can do rather than putting it on kids who with the best will in the world can walk into an exam and write nothing um, and somebody's pay depends on that and that to me is an issue absolutely i mean obviously as you know i was listening to the talk from the uh, privileged sort of bird's eye view on the on the top in our learning house because it was that full i couldn't get in but um the, the bit that, that, that rang through with me is exactly what you said then you know what's the correlation between teachers performance if you like and the performance of the students and, and you'd like to think that there is some positive correlation in terms of the quality of teaching does lead to improved outcomes but it's certainly not a direct correlation and, and it's interesting you mentioned before about David Dido following listening to your you and Rob's talk I went and looked at one of his blogs and he had like a, a correlation piece about you know you wouldn't expect there to be a direct correlation between you know, you, the quality of teaching and the quality of outcomes, you wouldn't expect it to be a direct negative correlation either. It's somewhere in between. But you're right, yeah. you know, in this process, teachers control their own professional development. It's improving things that we know are more likely to make things better for students. So actually, you are going to get the outcomes eventually anyway. But like you said, it's not solely pinned on the performance of one or two, which you can't control. No, absolutely. And um, I think it's an interesting one because... That David's blog that you refer to there, it, it certainly gives you some food for thought about that that kind of that link. Um, but kind of more anecdotally, um, our school results have only gone up and up since we started doing this. Yeah. We, we started about four years ago, um, and we're now sort of in a position where we're in Alps two at A level for the second year in a row. Um, and you know, go back three, four, five years, we weren't. Um, our GCSE results keep going up. Um, and there's that really positive pattern of school improvement that, for me, this has got to be part of that because we are improving things in the classroom and that does impact on our kids. And so all the signs, I know you can never sort of say, you know, that was definitely caused by this, but, you know, there's a good pattern emerging. Mm, definitely. 
Uh, one question that somebody actually asked me uh, following listening to, to, to you and Rob's talk on the day was, you know, you, you ask teachers to look at an area that they need to develop. They wondered how skilled do you think that particularly new teachers are at being able to diagnose which areas they almost need to improve on? Is there any way that you, you kind of influence that? Yeah, I think that's a really valid question because actually when you are new to the profession, it's hard really to know what things that you need to work on. Um, and I think you need to not forget that as part of the um, part of a policy like this. So our sort of NQTs, NQTs plus one, etc., they get um, a lot more support with um, identifying their, those areas. Um, and actually their... Um, leads on their projects will sit down with them and, and you know interrogate that a little bit so, you know you're telling me you want to get better at independent learning well what is that mm. and how are you defining that and actually what does that look like in the classroom and actually you know thrashing out issues where we've had some staff turn around and say actually do you know what that feels like a bit of a non-starter for me actually I want to be looking at something that's a little bit more concrete and, and so it's getting the support right for the early early stage teachers um, is really really important. So yeah, good question, but a lot of a lot of kind of time and support needs to go into that to make sure that it's effective and that staff are looking at areas that are actually going to be capable of improving in the classroom. No, brilliant. Brilliant. So as we mentioned that you were at Research Ed Blackpool, now I think that you're next, uh, you're going to be going down to Research Ed National, uh, are you going to be talking on a similar theme down there as well? Uh, we are, yes. So we're going to um, talk again kind of about the policy, we'll maybe tweak a few things, we'll leave some time for questions because we didn't get um, time for that this time unfortunately um, and I know quite a lot of people did have questions so we'll make sure we definitely leave some time for that as well. Fantastic. Well, I know there's going to be a lot of interest in that because, like I said, up in Blackpool now, people are literally buzzing about that. And we had a we had a forum because you probably know that we do some work with Teacher Development Trust as well around yeah. in, in CPD models. And our, our last hub meeting was around what you and Rob were talking about. So a lot of interest in that. And I'm sure a lot of people will come and, come and see that at Research Ed National. Not least the Blackpool contingent. The Blackpool bus has been booked. <laughs> For, oh, is it booked and ready? Yes, it's booked, and, it's booked and ready. I don't know why we said a bus. I mean, surely a train would be better. But there well, we go. Well, yeah, you would think. You really would, wouldn't you? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, well, there we go. So that's booked. That's looking forward to that. Um, last question, Amy, if that's okay. Um, where on. can where can listeners find a little bit more out about you and the kind of things that you're doing? Um, I guess Twitter, for me, is probably one of the main um things that I'm sort of involved in. I do have blogs I occasionally write on, but not very often. Um, but I have written um, a blog about this process in a little bit more detail as well. So that is that is on there if people do want to find out a little bit more about that. Um, or my Twitter, sometimes it's full of um, nonsense and me talking about makeup brushes. Other times I'm occasionally talking about education as well. Fantastic. We'll put a link to your blog, which is, is the defyingstarsteaching.wordpress.com. That's the one, yeah. Excellent. So we'll put a link to that and to your Twitter uh, on, on the introduction to the podcast. So, Amy, thank you very much once again. Thanks for giving up your time on your Easter break to speak to us. And I look oh, forward no to, to seeing you again soon. Yes. Thank you. Bye. Well, as I'm sure you'll agree, a fantastic interview. I could listen to Amy talk about research literally all day. So thank you again to Amy for giving up her time. 
Next week, I am hoping to finally pin down Mr. Liam Webb. Uh, Liam is a PE teacher, a PE for learning uploader and a webinar host, and I'll be talking to him about his upcoming piece that he's written for Teacher Toolkit on his use of research and evidence in PE. In the next few weeks following this, I'm going to be speaking with Daniel Mers and Pritesh Raichura, and bringing in a skilled co-host for the occasion, which is none other than Blackpool Research School Director, Mr. Simon Cox. And I'll also be, in that time, preparing to present at the fantastic Research Ed Rugby on the 15th of June, when I'll be talking about uh, escaping the hamster wheel of accountability, using research to enhance culture in schools. Research, research Ed Rugby looks amazing. It's got strands on leadership, research, English, maths, geography, science and MFL. And it's also got a debate. And Jude Hunton, who organises the event, has promised a day of optimism, practical research-informed ideas, networking and conversation. And I, for one, cannot wait. So hopefully back in the next couple of weeks. But until then, have a fantastic holiday, a happy Easter, and see you next time on Nailers Natter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about academic research and evidence-based practice with continuing professional development at PNA1977 on Twitter. Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. 